Welcome to the road to growth, success of an entrepreneur. We've raised the bar. Learn firsthand from successful business owners and create your own path to success. I'm going to show you how great I am. It's time to hit the road to growth with team lead of the Enriquez Group, Realtor Vinny. That's two main uh, ways that I support people. One is I help inspiring entrepreneurial women, usually over age 50, and a few awesome men uh, who are looking to grow their impact and income through some kind of one-to-many program, a new revenue stream. I help them realize they actually already have an audience uh, that they just need to, to build from their existing network of people who already know that can trust them. And I also work with mission-driven and passion-driven organizations to help them bring their events online with less stress and greater participant engagement. Because I believe the reason we used to get on planes and maybe we're starting to get back on planes to go to conferences and meetings is not just for content, but for the possibility of great connections and our virtual events should meet that promise as well. So designing, engaging uh, virtual events is a big part of it. But my background is actually engaging in-person events uh, back pre-pandemic. That's what I was best known for was helping people design those events and also teach people how to network at them. So that's starting to come back into the for forefront a little bit, which has been interesting. Well, and it's probably in based off the state that it's in, right? The event. Yeah, I mean, it's all over the place. I have um, a client, Feeding America, that's been, uh, I've been working with them on their virtual events for the last year and a half, and they're having their first in-person annual conference in three years um, since the pandemic, basically. And so uh, what's really wonderful is that a lot of the best practices that I always cared about are still really important and maybe even more so because none of us are very skilled. We're, we're all a bit rusty and out of practice for how to do the in-person thing. But yeah, it is, it is dependent on where the event is being held. Well, you said so mostly it's women that you help, older women, I guess, well, relatively. Um, yeah. <laughs> yet, and then you threw a couple of men in. Why is, why is your focus, I guess, more on, on women than men? So when I launched my podcast back in 2016, every other guest was a woman. And about a year and a half in, I was in the process of trying to launch my first um, group coaching program. And I got some people in for the pilot. And then when I went to launch the, the next iteration, I really struggled to get people to sign up for it, even though people kept reaching out to me for other types of, you know, oh, Robbie, can you help with this, can you help with that? And I got a chance to speak with a coach and it was actually through her and she's this demographic. I realized that all the people who had been reaching out to me for these like one-off coaching engagements were all entrepreneurial women in their fifties. And when I looked at who came to my pilot, uh, all entrepreneurial women in their fifties. And so I was like, Oh, and then I thought, well, who hits reply and like comments on my podcasts and hits reply to message me, about my emails. Oh, and so it, it just sort of, they found me. And, uh, I think the reasoning, is that the way I talk about the work that I do, it really matches up with the kind of values that a lot of women have about relationships. And they like that it's not sleazy or, or salesy. It's, it's really focused on adding value. And then I want to also say like, and a few awesome men, because the kind of guys that like hang out with some awesome women are the kind of guys that tend to show up. And that's, that's who I am too. Um, I think this really makes sense. These are women I, I love having in my network, I love having as friends. And it just happens that I can help them um, build their businesses in a way that really feels authentic to who they are. Makes sense. Yeah. Finding your tribe. I guess sometimes we, yeah, we do, we try to uh, design our tribe, but then you kind of have to reassess kind of what your tribe currently is. 
Um, talking about a young Robbie, who was a young Robbie? Was he this kind of outgoing personality trying to help people or who's a young Robbie? Well, uh, so I'm an out trans guy. So young Robbie uh, was not he, which is one interesting fact. Okay. But um, I actually, I was always very gregarious uh, and, and extroverted. Um, but I think I, I actually, uh, in, in having to think through what gender means to me, I actually became, I think, more thoughtful about how to use that energy. And it sort of became more like a responsibility as opposed to, and, and like something I'm really aware of, like the privilege of being outgoing and gregarious and having the energy to show up places. I uh, think of it as extra, extra privilege. Like how do I make space for other people? How do I include other people? It's really become a big part of how I try to show up in the world as a, as a leader is not so much being up front, even though it's very easy for me to be out front. Um, but I was definitely a kid who liked organizing things. I was always selling things. Um, you know, I, I got in trouble in second grade for selling something to us, to a classmate. And, you know, I got home, my dad was like, go for, you know, go you. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't get, I get in trouble at home. And by high school, I was, I had a, a business, uh, selling bagel sandwiches. I mean, first it started out with like candy and gum, but, uh, but I was pretty much always innovating. And there were some teachers and guidance counselors who really encouraged it, even though it was definitely not kind of, uh, in the rules. Uh, but they like they like the entrepreneurial spirit that I had, and then I went and got into nonprofit. And it it's not that those entrepreneurial leanings went away. I just channeled it towards that different kind of purpose. But um, but the speaking kind of eventually kind of got I got caught up in that again, and that that led me back to the path of entrepreneurship. Took a took a little detour for well, about fifteen years. Let's walk through the timelines then. So you're. Yeah. Um, young, selling stuff, kind of the entrepreneur mindset. Then it, high school, I mean, still, I'm guess, selling things. So kind of putting more out so, yeah. High school is when my my cousin got me a, my first business card. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was on, what did it say on the business card? It was it was Bagels Plus was the name of the business because I was uh, taking orders for bagel sandwiches, uh, egg sandwiches, and uh, well, anything that you'd be wanting to put in a bagel. It was a dollar. Uh, you know, for one kind and a dollar fifty for kind of anything else. <laughs> uh, and I would spend hours each night making it and then heating things up in the morning and running around figuring out how to get wholesale bagels. And I mean, it, it was interesting. I, and I got I actually convinced my parents to get a wholesale membership, like a like a BJ's membership, because I, I was buying candy. And, uh, you know, that first year they were like, I don't want to pay for it. So I, I paid for the membership for the first year. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm, yeah, I just I was just always kind of figuring things out, always hustling things. Um, that's definitely I think that people thought I was doing that, and I also really like computers. Um, so I think my dad was like, "Go into computers," which is funny because in a way, because of Zoom <laughs> and because everything's online, I have kind of come back to it uh, to some of those early, early, early inclinations. When did you start? I guess giving up the entrepreneur stuff and transitioning over to the nonprofit stuff. Yeah, in college, I got involved with tons of clubs and activities and had the opportunity to just be running a lot of events. And I always had been drawn to that, but I'd never really been given that kind of platform before. I actually stayed for college a fifth year because there was an opportunity for me to run a regional conference. So I only had four classes remaining and I took three in the fall and one in the spring just to be a student so I could um, run this this regional conference. And so 
that that I just loved it. I loved gathering people. I always had and love inspiring people who are volunteering. We we're all volunteering to to take a part of this and, and make it happen. And so I was trying to figure out a career path and I went to my <laughs> career office and there was a one little book that said um, careers in social work. And there was a description of a community organizer. And at the end of that little section, it said uh, degrees, masters in social work. And I was like, okay, I don't have to go back and I don't have to like go right to the workforce. I can like, I could probably just go to grad school and I applied one place, which is where I was an undergrad and I got in. And so I think going there and going from the macro social work degree, which is all about groups and organizations and how people experience life collectively, that was that really kind of led me down that path. And from there, I sort of applied to some nonprofit roles and, you know, went went down that path. And I'm, I'm very mission driven as a person. So it didn't really feel like far off from who I am. I, I really care about the world. Um, it was a way to sort of bring my skill sets uh, into a place that needed them. When I, when I think most social work, and, and maybe this is the overgeneralization, you think that there's probably not getting the pay, paid what they should be getting paid. Did that ever cross your mind when you were kind of making that decision, kind of going that? Because as an entrepreneur, you were probably doing it to, to make money, kind of even build something. And now you're going more off of kind of emotion off of like, yeah, but was there anything that kind of sort of ring in the back of your head? Maybe I should go this other direction or no, it was just all kind of. Yeah, I, I think uh, one, I n never planned to be a clinician or to hang a shingle. I never planned to, to see patients, that, that kind of clinical social worker. There's never my desire. I did macro. I do. I really was more interested in community organizing aspect of it. And I was fortunate to go to a school that had um, some emphasis on that. But my uh, my resume when I was leaving grad school, uh, I think my my vision at the top said to support multiple annual events at a mission driven organ organization. Like I really loved that. And I, I had an opportunity right after grad school to work for a nonprofit as an office manager. And I ended up wearing like nine hats. <laughs> it was a very small organization from, it, I was the third employee and it grew to nine um, in, in like three years. Um, and so I learned a lot about everything there is to know about a nonprofit from like how to order the new copier and what HR things. Basically I learned all the things I didn't want to be in charge of. And so I was really motivated to go somewhere where I could focus on the event side of things. And, uh, I did. I got that opportunity. I, I was able to spend actually the last decade of my nonprofit career was working for one organization, running about 25 events a year, raising about a million dollars a year through fundraising events and major gifts. And then from, from there, when did, what happened next? You're, so you're in the nonprofit, you're learning a lot of things, you're helping a lot of people. What happens next? Well, I started running a meetup group in 2006, a year after I got that job that, that I was at for a decade. And the meetup group is called Socializing for Justice. And it was about bringing together like-minded progressives uh, who didn't necessarily have um, identical politics, but we had some shared values. And we were hosting socials where people can get to know each other and kind of tear down the walls that tend to happen, uh, the silos that tend to happen in, in uh, communities. And so I was hosting that for a year and I brought together our regulars to talk to them about how we were going to create this culture that was really welcoming. 
And they all really liked the culture, which is why they were regulars. But we didn't want them to become clicky. And so I'm talking to them about coming a little early so that you can welcome the people who are new and helping out of the front door. And they're all nodding along. And then I said, and then the rest of the, you know, rest of the time, just, you know, walk around, schmooze, like work the room. And they gave me this like deer in headlight look because they were not comfortable. The majority of the people, there was almost 20 people in the room, I would say well more than half identified as either shy and or introverted. <laughs> and while they appreciated the way we ran things, they weren't really sure they had the skills to do it themselves. And so I started creating a training and that training became my signature talk art of the schmooze. And uh, I basically was just offering a pro bono to a bunch of local groups. And I get a call from a friend in New York. I'm at that point, I'm living in Boston, which is I'm, I'm part of this national group that's meeting in DC, their board of directors is gathering and they want a training on fundraising. And I know you do trainings on networking, but I know you, you, your job is fundraising. Can you come and do a talk on fundraising? And I said, Yes. <laughs> and then hastily threw together something. And that was my first paid gig. It was, they offered me $200 and a flight, which was $200. And they, uh, I basically stayed with my friend in her hotel room because they didn't give me a place to stay. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was so bare bones. Um, but it got, it gave my foot in the door. And after that, I, I, what I did was I billed them $400 and gave them a 50% referral discount and then spent a year saying I charge $400. And then a year later, someone said, okay. And then after that, okay, I just said 600. And then uh, within a few months, I got a yes and I 800. So I basically, my prices, my, to get from 200 to 1,000 took you know a couple of years. And then I got stuck. And then I basically went from there to 7,500, 10,000 in, in a couple of years. Like, like it was just kind of funny how once it happened, it happened really fast. Well, going back to that original meetup that you put together, why do you think so many of the people that you had that came to that, that original meetup were so much of introverts? Was it the crowd that you're in? Because especially you being an extrovert, right? Was it you seeing people that were more introverted and trying to make them included into the conversation? Was it any kind of like idea that that was kind of the focus or any kind of game plan of let's get these people to try to help them out in the future? What was the idea behind it? Well, I'll tell you that one of the things we were asking people to do is if you showed up three times to that organization in a short enough amount of time that we remembered you, then you became one of our regulars. We would pull you aside and talk to you about the kind of culture we were trying to create. And we would actually give you this like little sheriff's badge that said change agent. <laughs> and when you're at the events, you were told that for the first half hour, don't hang out with the other people you know seek out people who are kind of on the sidelines seem like they don't know anyone we'd give them like activities to do with people whether it was writing something on a sticker that said asking about or i'm looking for we give them bingo sheets to you whatever it was or we'd be playing like pool or something something would be happening as it'd be easy to do but really it was about focusing on how do you bring people how do you welcome them not just invite but welcoming people in and i think what happened was the introverted and or shyer people um, they appreciate having that role. They appreciated having that role and responsibility to help them actually be more present in the room. And so they were more willing to stick around and it gave them a leadership skill that they then took elsewhere. Cause once your eyes are opened to how to do that, you don't just do it in one place. You do it wherever you go. 
And it was such a wonderful ripple effect on the nonprofit community in Boston that we were really training people on how to collaborate and create community and, and create these wonderful events. And I did that talk um, paid uh, in various locations, mostly nonprofit and foundations for five years. And then finally there was a, there was a way for me to leave and focus on this full time. And that was 2015. So I, I had sort of this, this uh, momentum behind the business, but it was definitely a side hustle for a very long time. Was there a moment or what was that moment? If there was that you go, I can give up this steady paycheck <laughs> to go for this quote unquote side hustle and make it a full time gig. So my friend mentor and coach, Dory Clark <laughs> told me, you will know it's time to quit your job when it gets in the way of your business. <laughs> and she had been trying to get me to leave the comfort and safety of that job for a couple of years. There was like a dinner gathering where it felt like an intervention. I was surrounded by all these entrepreneurs and they were all like, go do it. And I never until that moment realized how much I really liked stability and a paycheck and insurance and healthcare. And like, it just, I suddenly clung to it. But, um, I did go partly because in my department, in my nonprofit development fundraising department, uh, I'd been there a decade and my boss had been there a year and everyone else had come in after him. So it really changes the dynamic of a, a workplace when the people you've worked with are no longer there, when everybody's new. And so that was making it, like it wasn't as hard to think about leaving because staying, staying was feeling less comfortable. Meanwhile, the speaking gigs was one to four a month. It was getting some cadence. I was taking vacation time to go and do talks <laughs> somewhere else. Um, the thing is, when I left, I knew I wanted a new audience. I didn't want to stay in the nonprofit sphere. And so in some ways, I did start over. So I had momentum. I had a talk. I had, I had assets, but I didn't have coaching programs. I didn't have an online course. I didn't have anything other than a talk. And I also did not yet have a new audience for that talk. And so that was 2015 really was in a lot of ways, a, a re restart while I was committing to this full-time entrepreneurship. What was that process of putting the game plan together? Was it with the, the coaches you talked about? I mean, sitting down with them and, and figuring out kind of the audience, figuring out the structure. I mean, what was that process like? I just wrote an email today to my list that said I really would have benefited from having a conversation with an experienced coach at that time because I, you know, I did what a lot of people do, which is I, I signed up for courses. Um, and some of those courses, it just was way over my head because I didn't get have a clear sense of my ideal client. I mean, I had clients, but the clients I had were not the clients I still wanted. So that wasn't helpful. And every course starts with describe your ideal client. And it's like Starbucks or Dunkin'. And I'm like, you know, they're like audiobooks or podcasts. I'm like, I don't know. Where are they listening to them? Car or shower? I'm like, I'm just making stuff up. So that felt very disconnected. I was listening to a lot of podcasts, in particular, Pat Flynn's Smart Passive Income. Um, got really hooked on all of his old shows, got excited about all, all these ideas. And finally, at this moment, where I was like, wow, I'm way off track from what I want to create. I need to stop just, you know, jumping at every new idea, every shiny object. And I settled on the idea of launching my own podcast. And so that was my 2015 commitment mid-year. And I also had a kid that year, so things got a little slowed down. But I did launch it in 2016. And I'm still hosting on the schmooze now, five and a half years later. But that was a chance for me to start to think about audience and 
who was who was my ideal listener and what, what was I creating content for um, and just start to create content. So that kind of anchored me a bit and gave me a foothold, but it would be a couple of years before I realized that I could be providing a lot of value to associations in particular, the ones that are hosting these larger conferences. Um, and as I was getting momentum around that, you know, I was also starting, um, I wrote my first book, which is about networking at conferences, launched a group coaching program. I mean, I was starting to kind of diversify and build out uh, new revenue streams and also focusing on a lot of the um, kind of uh, the pieces to be recognized expert, you know, like doing a TEDx, um, writing for HBR, getting quoted in Forbes and, you know, just the kind of, you know, collateral things that give you some recognition in your field, I, which are not revenue producing, right? A lot of those things <laughs> cost you time. Having a podcast costs you time, but it it was helpful to get my name out there and providing value in different ways and to become known um, in my space as a person who shows up and adds value. Yeah, so, so much truth to what you said. Uh, <laughs> rewinding back to 2015, yeah. when you're starting your podcast, like you're saying, you're you're investing time into future growth. I mean, you're you're having your child. I mean, more, more money. The great things and more money. I mean, was there ever a, a moment of stress where you go, maybe I should go back to a nonprofit to get that steady paycheck and maybe not go down this rabbit hole. So it was, it was a few months after I'd left my job, I started getting all these inquiries. People realized uh, that I was no longer at my, I'd been there a long time. And I was well known because I was still running that meetup group. I ran that group for 11 years. So I was very well known in that space and um, in, in that location, uh, greater Boston area. So people started sending me, you know, hey, are you available to help with this event, this fundraising event? Or can you help us create a fundraising plan? Just, just different things. and. I didn't want, I mean, yeah, I could do all those things, but I didn't want to do all those things. Like, I knew that that was my experience, but not my passion. And I remember having a conversation with my wife and uh, we actually lived the time on campus. She was a, she was a director of residence life. We had a, an apartment on campus that was paid for as part of her salary. We had very low overhead. Um, we had a lot of savings because she had been living on campus for her whole life. Uh, and so I went to her and I said, hey, I'm going to turn down these opportunities. I really want to focus on the networking thing. And she said, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then like, you know, half an hour later, I went up to her again and said something. And she was like, yeah, that, you know, you should definitely focus. I don't want you to get distracted. And then I like two hours later, I go up to her again. And she says, are you asking permission to not make money? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. She goes, I love you, but I don't need you. I mean, I've lived here for six years without you. It's fine. Do you. And I was like, thank you. I mean, no, really, thank you. Wow. And I was like, that's amazing. So it was just permission. And so we lived there for a couple more years, had two kids, and we eventually moved off and then had, you know, a big rent. And eventually now we're, we went and bought a house, but it, it the pressure slowly built. But it really, I had, I had a long runway. I had a couple of years to really do that focused brand building. And I know things part of the, I'm a great business growth strategist because I've had to do everything grassroots. <laughs> I know how to do all the things. I know what things to farm out now that I have the money to do it. I don't want to do it all, but there were times where I, I didn't have the money and I had to learn all the details and all the nitty gritty, um, how to run things myself. And so, I, you know, for me, I kind of, the revenue wasn't the focus of my business for many years. It was really the brand building. Um, the working on my craft 
and the building, building the community around it. And when the pandemic caused me to have to reevaluate everything I did, I didn't feel like I was starting from scratch then either. It was definitely about building upon what I had been known for. And I was able to launch a pilot of a four week training program around online facilitation and you know how to use Zoom, May of 2020. I announced it in April and it was filled within a week. Like I had 15 people, $500 a piece. That didn't happen because I ran ads. That didn't happen because I had a website. In fact, there was no mention of it on my website for two months. I ran it four months in a row. Um, the people who were buying from me had that no like, and trust. And it happened because I turned all those, Robbie, can I pick your brain? Can we have coffee? Can you help me with the Zoom thing? I turned all those calls into research calls and I figured out what people needed and I put together a pilot and tested it. And so I could have just had lots of calls. I could have had social calls that led nowhere revenue wise, which my extroverted brain kind of would have been fine with. But I was coaching entrepreneurs at the time through this and I could never give them the advice to fill their calendar with these random social calls. And so I, I was like, what would I tell them? I would tell them in terms of research calls. And so my second book, Smallest Big Results is about how to build the audience before you try to sell the offer. So what does that research call look like? Is it, I mean, I'm thinking about putting this together. Would you have interest in it? That's simple or is it? No, it's actually not pitchy at all. And I think that's one of the things people make a mistake about. It's it's that, I think a lot of us, we're, you know, the people I tend to attract, we wanna do good in the world. We wanna provide great value, we wanna help people. And we're experts. We know things that, that we, we can see wow, like if you just do this little thing differently, it would be, you know, so much better. But when we get really excited about a new idea and we just go and we build it, we tend to do that in isolation without any input from people who we're trying to help. And so when we finally, months later, uh, bring it to the market, the marketplace basically says, who, who are you? What is this? I don't, I don't need this. And the thing is, from their perspective, they don't think they need it because they're not an expert. And the, the problems that they're dealing with are not the ones you know they're dealing with. <laughs> like they don't, they're just not aware. And so I think this mistake happens, happened to me. It happens to almost everybody I know. Like this is a mistake we have over and over again. So for me, it's about really understanding like what do people need? So getting on those calls before I have a fully formed idea. Because if, my, if I've been working on selling this for a year, I'm not actually that into changing it. I get my ego really wrapped up in it. But if I can have an inkling of an idea and reach out and be like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this thing, but I want to test some assumptions before I get too much further. I think based on your experience with XYZ, you'd have some insights. I'd love to hear that. Can we set up a quick chat? And it's just that. And I'm just like, what I basically tell likely prospects to do is to come to the call with three questions. It could be three problems, three scenarios, three challenges, three examples, right? Three something. And after five minutes of like catching up, because sometimes these are people I haven't talked to in a while, I'm like, okay, tell me again, what, what were those three things you, were, you, you know, did you plan to share? But I don't give them the answers right away. Because I think the mistake a lot of us make is we give away a lot of free advice. You give away an hour's worth of free advice and then people don't hire you. It's very demoralizing. But it's because people don't act on that free advice. And it's not a strategy, it's just a list of tactics and they're confused by it. And they end up asking somebody else because they're embarrassed to ask you because you were very generous with your time and they don't want to bother you again. It just kind of backfires. So instead, it's using this time 
to say over like 15 minutes, hey, tell me more about these three things. Well, you know, how are they impacting your life, your business, your sleep, your bottom line, your family, whatever, right? Like, how, what have you tried? What's worked? What do you think would work? What's in your way? You just like coaching questions. And what you're trying to do is move people from what I call little p problem awareness, which is the symptoms that they're dealing with, but they don't think of it as symptoms. So I don't want to call it that, right? To them, it's a problem. So they're little p problem awareness to big P problem awareness, which is the problem you know they have. And if you can get them starting to think about it that way, and they're like, whoa, I didn't realize that was what was happening. And you're like, well, here's an idea of something you can try. And you give them like one or two things to test in the next few weeks. And you're like, listen, this may or not be a thing. But the people I've worked with, I think this could help most of my research. Listen, when I work with people, I don't do a strategy in 15 minutes, it would be like a three hour deep dive. So if this doesn't work, don't feel bad about coming to me and asking me another question. I'm going to go talk to more people. I'll circle back if I can find anything useful for you. And then if you find out that they end up being like a good person to enroll in a pilot that you put together, you reach back out for an enrollment call and you say, there was this thing you said to me that really stood out. It's been in my brain. Here's the quote. And let's chat. I want, I want to know if this is, if I'm going in the right direction again. Here's the promise. Here's the outcome of my pilot. Here's how it will be structured. What do you think? And if they're into it, you're like, great. I reached out to you thinking you'd be perfect for this. I'd love to have you join us. And it's an enrollment call. And of course, they're going to pay you something. It won't be like the full amount for like the full program, but you got to validate with dollars. And they're the people who are going to want to give you feedback. They're going to want to help you test it. They're going to be open to trying it all out, you know, before you do ads, before you do websites, before you have, uh, I mean, no thinkific, no, you know, know what I mean? Like, I think we forget that to pilot, you need content that people want to learn, people who want to learn it, a method to share the content with them and a way for them to pay you. Mm. That's it. You don't need landing pages and websites and emails, responder. I mean, there's just so these ways in which to become like official entrepreneurs, we kind of clutter things up, but to be in business, you need clients. <laughs> it's like, but I think we get in our way. And so really the, the, these calls are really simple. And a lot of what I teach in my second book and in my, my courses and my, my program coaching programs is how to wake up your network to discover likely prospects and likely referral partners who already know, like, and trust you. Because I have a belief that 80% of the people you need to know to be successful, you've already met. Yeah, no, I think that's great, great nuggets right there of, just a mindset that someone could put together when they're having those conversations. I mean, from your journey, um, I mean, it seems like you've been, I mean, very extrovert, very open to, to selling item, very open to bringing value, right? So the personality seems like it's been very consistent throughout your life. Mm -hmm. um, and right. What people see from the outside has probably changed or has changed when you were younger compared to your net to who you are now. I mean, do you do you see or do you feel or do you remember how they would take your message differently from how you look previously compared to how you look now? So I will say that um, before I, I mean, I, I physically started transitioning in 2004. So we're going back 20 years. This is not yeah. recent. But yeah. I will say that in college, let's say, um, yeah. I, you know, if I was very outspoken and you agreed with me, you loved me. If you disagreed with me, I was the B word, <laughs> right? And that could change based on the topic. Like you could love me for one thing. And so what I also learned very quickly was that if I 
if I was like that, very like take up space, looking like this, I'm that guy, you know, the guy who like is pushy and obnoxious and, you know, no. So like, I didn't want to be that guy. And so in a lot of ways, I actually learned, it was a very, um, it was a lot of like self-work for me to kind of come into this experience because I know that the word, the weight of my words are going to be heard differently than they were before. Before I had to fight a little bit to be heard. And so being a little louder and taking up a little more space was maybe to counteract some of the societal stuff. But if I did that now, I'm an ass, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, and I don't like, I don't want to be that guy. So yeah. I think that, um, that may also explain a little bit about how I ended up attracting all these amazing women into my life. Cause I'm a guy who my top was called art of the schmooze. And I would walk in wearing my jacket, you know, all nicely dressed up. And I would say, if there's 300 women here, why is this place freezing? I'm the only one wearing a jacket. You know, like you all get to speak up and con like, don't, don't make it comfortable for me. <laughs> like, you know, and like I, w my first blog posts and podcast episodes early on were about how, when will women win the rights of pockets? Right. So, and like how, and how that's like a thing that women don't have access to because the way clothing are designed. So I think that there was an appreciation probably that I would say certain things that were either never said, or most men just don't even notice. Um, that women's professional clothing don't have pockets or that a room is freezing for women who are wearing, you know, the, uh, the outfits that they have for, for those moments. And I'm like walking around in my like suit. Right. So I think that I just sort of name things and that combined with my love of relationship building and community building and inclusion. I think that the messaging just kind of landed. It just, I just had to open my eyes to the fact that that was happening. And I have a whole, in my book, and, and I've done this talk for a while about how to discover your ideal client. I have this whole Venn diagram around, you know, your expertise, your passion, and what people will pay for the impact and, and income that you get. Um, and that if you if you focus too much on the experience, I would have burnt out without having passion. And if you focus too much on the passion, you end up not being able to do everything else because you're so busy chasing this one client's needs that you don't really know how to do <laughs> the cost, you know, the, the, the something else you can't do. Right. Um, so I don't know. I was just been, and then if you don't charge, right. If you just have something you're good at and you love, but you don't charge, like it's a good hobby, but it's just not a business. So I think that I've been stuck in all of those places and I, it's a, something pitfalls. I try to help my clients avoid. <clears throat> if you're speaking to people outside your tribe, mm -hmm. right. I would assume your tribe knows, that you're, I mean, you're trans and where you kind of came from, right? Yet if you're speaking outside of your tribe, do you have to lay out the groundwork of, of who you are? Because some people, I mean, I, oh, you can't speak because you're not Mexican. You can't speak because you're not African American. You can't speak because you're not a woman. Do they have, do you have to lay the groundwork before you can actually speak your? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I've actually, prior to the pandemic, um, a majority of my talks were at um, women-focused spaces, like women's leadership summits, um, that kind of thing. And I'd be usually the only guy speaking other than maybe um, someone from a company who was making an introduction or doing a welcome or something like that. Um, women... Uh, women in Technology International would invite me to speak 
you know, to their chap to their local regional chapter thing. Um, and I didn't, I don't lead with the I'm trans um, because when people see me speaking, they're not going to know that. Like mm. my message has to work for the audience period. Yeah. Um, because they're going to read me as just another, you know, cisgender white dude. <laughs> like, um, so no, knowing that I have to sort of be, be like on message regardless. Um, but I do think that people are sometimes like, Oh, we, I actually had one client from a virtual events. He got so excited. Um, he, a gay man that I was talking, I didn't know at the time, I, when we were first having this conversation, he got all excited because, you know, they're trying to diversify their vendors <laughs> yeah. um, as part of their efforts around uh, equity. Uh, and when he first was talking to me, he didn't think that was part of the conversation at all. <laughs> and then he got like, oh, and then he's got excited because they have a trans health program. And he was like, you can come and produce that event. And then she can maybe tap you to like do some remarks. And so, you know, he got kind of excited about how to bring me into other things they were working on. So it became like a bonus. It's just not like leading into a conversation. It's always about me providing the value that that audience needs, whether it's an organization or an individual entrepreneur what or than or an audience of, that I'm coming to present in front of, I want to make sure that's coming forward first. But I also don't hide. I mean, I'm out. Like I, it, it it's 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 enough out there <laughs> that uh, if people haven't stumbled across it, they haven't stumbled across it. But um, you know, my website, like I became a certified um, LGBT uh, business enterprise uh, last year, so I have like I have that on my website, and my picture, my website's got a rainbow circle around it. I mean, you drop enough crumbs. I think most people just read me as a gay man and they get confused because yeah. I have a wife. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I get it. It's confusing. Uh, well, going to the future, right? Where do you yeah. see yourself? Where do you see you know, all the different platforms that you're doing going mm -hmm. in the next five years? It's really hard to look that far ahead because the horizon for a long time for me, it was only three to six months, the you know, last two years. It's just now starting to feel like I can look ahead a couple of years. Um, one thing that's been really interesting is that my experience with in-person conferences has started to become a skill set that, that's being needed again. Um, it's not a main part of my business, but it's something I feel so much passion for and I have so much experience around that I love the fact that when my virtual clients are starting to now do their first in-person again, we're just so out of practice. So all the things I used to teach, which was maybe geared more towards first timers, I think all of us benefit from having these structures in place. And I'm really about these micro adjustments that help us connect with each other. Like as you're going into the breakout room, you chose one of these sessions, you know, like concurrent, like those five or 10 minutes before the session begins, how can we help people talk to each other? Not in a like heavy handed, you know, happy camper kind of way, but how do you kind of create an environment where that's the possibility is what people are doing. And that allows uh, both um, sorry, extroverts who are more naturally geared towards that as well as introverts who maybe aren't to play uh, with that experience together. So I'm, I'm excited about that. I, I had said a few years ago before the pandemic uh, that I thought in-person events were gonna have more meaning in the future. And they were more intentional about which ones we would go to and that we would be selective about which ones served us and which ones we just didn't think were worth going to anymore. I did not know a pandemic would be the cause of that, but I think my prediction is still very, very true. 
that for me to leave my house and go somewhere at this point, and I love people, can't wait to hug strangers, it's still going to take for me a lot more thought than it used to when I would just decide to hop on a plane. So I'm just more comfortable. I can do all the things I need to do from home. I love it. My global network. Um, I can provide value and be of service right from here. So if I'm going to leave, it's, it's going to be really intentional. And I think a lot of people are feeling that way. And so I want to help event organizers design those engaging experiences in person that really meet what people's promise they're hoping are the promises that events going to be around content and connection. And if people are staying home, I want to do it for people virtually because we cannot just have you know, the old style webinars, the 45 minutes of death by PowerPoint followed by, in, in, you know, uh, no one following um, the chat moderation and, and the ongoing Q&A that's just like boring. Like we, we just can't have um, those kinds of style of events anymore. Well, thank you, Robbie, for being here. I mean, I think so much, <laughs> so much insight uh, for anyone listening right here. I mean, if, if people are listening, like you said, the event coordinators, like you, maybe an introvert, like anyone that this this interview has kind of touched what's the best way of them getting more robbie in their life well i did set aside a special link for people who want to know more about the smallest big results strategies that are in my second book we're trying to figure out how to build an audience before they create that offer uh and that's available at robbiesamuels.com forward slash vinny and so if you know, it's basically the bonus content for the big results toolkit for my book that you can get whether you get the book or not. And then um, definitely check out on the That's my my podcast. And RobbieSamuels.com is the home of all the things that I do. So if you're interested in learning more about my virtual event design consulting or the coaching programs that I have, you'll find everything at RobbieSamuels.com. I am a, a multi passionate entrepreneur and that is sort of where everything i try to make it all make sense on that one website rather than have multiple because all my stuff is me you know i i am the brand there's just lots of different ways that i can show up and offer value in the world well, thank you thank you again Ryan, for being here everyone listening uh go in the show notes um the, the website will be there and all awesome. of robbie's uh links will be there uh please subscribe please share and go find robbie Thank you for listening to The Road to Growth, Success of an Entrepreneur. Please like, subscribe, and stay connected. Visit www.TheEnriquezGroup.com. Yeah, I created a website. Hope to see you again next week. The Enriquez Group, signing off.